oh man, I'm changing my answer. Maybe I will go, <laughs> maybe I will go knock on Ayn Rand's door and see what's up. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'm your host for this episode, Mark. I'm once again joined by my lovely book friends, Gabriel, Corrine, Fiona, and Virginia. We're going to be doing a special episode related to writers and writing as November is National Novel Writing Month, or as it's more commonly known, NaNoWriMo. In this month, writers are challenged to finish a 50,000-word manuscript entirely in the month of November. The manuscript can either be like a completed novel or 50,000 words towards a larger work. The challenge has existed since 1999 and continues as a major annual event for many literary types and other biblio fans. There are even examples of well-known published books whose original drafts were written during NaNoWriMo. So it's had like an actual impact on published writing. It's not just a fan exercise, although that would still be quite interesting in its own right. For this month, we thought it would be appropriate to dedicate an episode to books about writers, the writing process, or some other aspect of creative writing. So to start us off today, I think we will go to Fiona. So today, my book involves a writer <laughs> but that does come in a little bit later in the story so let me start you off at the start it is a hot summer day in southern california and a cop and his wife are throwing a christening party for their second baby girl a handsome da arrives with a bottle of gin as a gift for this christening party. And that's when things really get started. The guests pick all of the oranges off of the orange tree. They make screwdrivers and the liquor cabinet uh, begins to overflow with the dregs of everyone else's liquor cabinet that they have brought to the party to contribute. All of this is a jumping off point for an affair. The DA meets the cops stunningly beautiful wife they're a little bit tipsy and so they make out with the most beautiful baby girl whose christening party it is in between them <laughs> this dreamlike account is the beginning of <laughs> i've made you very uncomfortable this is the beginning of the story of a blended family. Uh, so the cousins and the Keatons, between them, there are six children. There is Franny, whose christening it was, and who grows up to be not just a beautiful baby, but a beautiful woman. Her sister, Carolyn, who loves her father and is set, completely set on becoming a lawyer to please him. And then there are the cousin kids, the oldest, Cal, who seems to have a lot of anger issues. Uh, the second oldest, Holly, who's the smart one. She does all of the talking. She likes to please the adults. Then there's Jeanette. Oh, Jeanette. No one knows anything about Jeanette because Jeanette never speaks. And then there is Albie, 
the youngest, the most absolutely annoying child than you could possibly imagine. Because of this affair, these children begin to spend their summers together. And what seems like it could be total disaster eventually falls into a routine of dangerous happiness, we'll call it. I did almost stop reading the book. Well, first of all, with the affair, but then there's this whole escapade in the summer where the two parents who have uh, gotten together take them to a little motel, motel by the lake. And they're so sick of these six kids that they just let, leave them a note and say, you know, like, go get your breakfast from the cafe. We'll see you in a little while. You can handle it. Um, and the kids, so the kids put, you know, chocolate bars on the tab. They buy a bunch of Cokes. They break into their parents' car, steal a gun out of the glove compartment, pass around the Benadryl that the one kid has for his allergy to a bee stings and chase it all down with the gin that is also in the glove compartment. Very upsetting. And I was like, where's this going? This is going to be so bad. But actually what it comes down to is this sort of this sense of freedom for them, this found family in these stepchildren, um, these step siblings, where this kind of ragtag bunch of kids that nobody seems to want find some solace in each other. That's kind of the setup. The writer comes in when Franny is grown up. Well, she's a young adult or a young woman, uh, and she's recently dropped out of law school. And she has no idea what to do with her life. When she looks across the bar that she's waiting and sees none other than a fictional author, Leo, somebody who, you know, she absolutely adores. He's twice her age, but they strike up a conversation. Now, Franny is the most likable of these ragtag kids, but I'm not sure that I can forgive her for this affair with her with her idol, who is, again, twice her age. <laughs> they begin an affair that actually turns into, uh, you know, a long connected love story. But the author gets hold of these stories that Franny has told him. She's absolutely just enamored that he wants to listen to her. So she tells him all of these ridiculous stories of their childhood. He writes it into a manuscript. The manuscript sells millions of copies, and she begs him not to sell the film rights. So he doesn't. Little by little, each of the family members sort of discover the book and the fact that it's about them and their lives. And, you know, some of them confront Franny. How could you do this? What's interesting is that this book is really, it's about the tendrils of life and especially blended families, about the complications and how how one branch creates more branches, creates more branches. How do you keep track of track? of everyone's second wife and their third wife and their stepchildren. But I was actually quite surprised because in the end, it was very saccharine. It was beautiful and touching. And the characters were so much more likable uh, than I thought they would be. Albie, who's an absolutely detestable child, grows up to eventually sort of, you know, come back to his sisters uh, with all of this life experience and and settle down and be a, a good, nice human. and. Well, the central kind of like motif is this idea of an author taking a story and running with it. And how does that affect the people whose story it belongs to? How do stories differ from re reality? And kind of has this interesting meta 
point where the story in the book is the same title as the actual book, which is Commonwealth by Anne Patchett. So while that's kind of the, the central motif, ultimately, it is a family drama that spans over... I don't know, like 60 years. So while I came into it thinking like, oh my gosh, why did I pick this up? And the answer is because of this beautiful cover that I saw on all the like bestseller shelves. And then when I came back to it, I was like, oh, you know, I could try that. But in the end, it actually ended up being kind of my kind of book. My first delve into Ann Patchett, she is a master. Oh my goodness. Again, like there were some weaknesses, but you you forget about them as the story chugs along, as you begin to love these unlikable characters. Her prose are just so flawless. And like the way that she decides to layer the story and time um, was very out of sequence, but it wasn't difficult to follow because the, the point is sort of a picture, not not a narrative from start to finish. So if you didn't read it when it came out and was on all the bestseller lists, I would recommend uh, Commonwealth, a novel by Anne Patchett. No one will be surprised by the family drama aspect of Fiona's pick, but definitely very interesting uh, once again. So I think next we may go to Virginia. All right. Um, so I'm trying to get some bonus points here because my book is about a writer writing a book about a writer. So I feel like I should get some points here. Um, definitely comes right away, not like Fiona's or that comes later. This is a debut novel, and this is Greenland by David Santos Donaldson. And if you want to get a sense of what this book is about, go look up this cover, this amazing, glorious cover, because you want to get a feel of this book. This is what this is about. I have not seen a cover for a book that is so representative of what the what the kind of story that you're going to get. This is a story about Kip Starling, who is an author, and he is right now locked up in a basement with boxes and boxes of crackers, cans and cans of coffee, gallons and gallons of water, and a gun. Don't worry, this is a self-imposed confinement. And he's also trying really hard to prove Chekhov wrong. Just because there's a gun in the first page doesn't mean that it's going to go off. He's going to try his best so that the gun does not go off. He has decided to lock himself up for three weeks because he has been trying to get published for the past, I don't know, two years. And no one has shown any interest in his manuscripts and his agent has tried and just nobody seems to be interested. But a couple of days ago, his agent called and said, hey, I've got an editor and it's not just like one of those unknown editors, it's like a really well-known editor and like she said she'll meet with you and he was so excited because Kip thought, this is it, I'm going to get published. Unfortunately, when he met with the editor, the editor said, you know, I'm so sorry to bring you bad news, but my imprint just got bought out and the new owner is not really interested in your type of story. So I'm sorry, but I won't be able to bring your book to publication. This is the first time Kip has ever even got a chance to meet with the editor. So he's going to seize that chance. He say, okay, I understand. I understand. But like, just tell me, what would you ask me to do? What would I have to change, give you were to publish my book. Can you give me some advice? Give me some suggestions. And so the editor said, well, I think 
you should tell your story from Mohammed's point of view. And so here we are, Kip in his basement. He's locked himself out and he's got three weeks to revise his story, to tell it from Mohammed's point of view. His book is about the love affair between E.M. Forster and Mohammed, a black man that he met in Egypt. He has written the book from Ian Forster's point of view, and all his friends call him Morgan. So in the book, he will be referred to as Morgan. And as he's writing the story, he started to see himself in Mohammed. They're both Black. They are both queer. And they have both been involved with an older white man. Him with Ben, a psychologist, uh, soon to be ex-husband probably because Ben wants a divorce. He's starting to see the similarities. He started to see his life in Muhammad's life. And as he is trying to find that voice of Muhammad, trying to find his story, everything starts blending together. And he started to like, can't tell quite fact and fiction anymore. And he started to hear voices. Now, it could be because he is only has been only living on crackers and coffee for the last few days, but he started to hear voices, not those voices from outside the room, which he thinks is Ben and his best friend, Concha, trying to like stage an intervention. But inside the room, someone is speaking to him and he doesn't know who. And he's trying to like listen to this voice telling him all sorts of things. And as he's trying to rewrite this story and he's trying to rewrite, it's going to take him on this really weird, bizarre, surreal journey. And as he's trying to work out his own existential crisis. E.M. Forster, as I said, known as Morgan, of course, is the author of Howard's End, A Room with a View, A Passage to India, or all those Merchant Ivory films that you know about. He met Morgan when he was in Alexandria, Egypt, when he worked for the Red Cross. And they fell in love. But Forster didn't stay. And Mohammed eventually got married. But they stay in touch. And when Mohammed died not too long afterwards of tuberculosis, his wife actually sent Morgan his wedding ring. And David Santos Donaldson did such a great job in incorporating Morgan and Mohammed's story into Kip's. This story is now set in the States. And even at one point in the book, Mohammed was like, you know, as, as he telling his story, he was like, oh, readers, you must be laughing at how silly all these taboos are that a white man can be with a black man. And it's ridiculous how the world hasn't really changed that much from Mohammed's time. And Kip is struggling because he is raised British and he's just recently moved to the States. And he's so much more like Morgan than Mohammed. And he has been brought up in a way that, he, like he said, he's more British than the British because when you're a Black family in UK, you have to be so British to survive. And that's how his family raised him. And now in the States, people just think that he's just this uppity Black man, you know, and they don't understand his accents. And as he pointed out in one of the chapters, thank goodness for Idris Elba, like now suddenly there is an option for people who meet him. Hey, maybe he's not an uppity 
Black American. Maybe he's an Idris Elba, you know. And so it's it's that kind of humor and and that sharp kind of social commentary in the book, which I think is so wonderful. It's just his voice. I love the voice of Kip. It shines through, and it's just so funny. And a lot of the book is is him and Kip and his sort of internal monologue as he's trying to like deal with this crisis that he has, this identity crisis. And as days goes by, he's locked up and and no words are coming to him. He can't write anything and he just can't deal with it. And and of course, the book also talks a lot about how he questioned. He keep questioning himself and you know, in addition in addition to other people questioning him, like, wait. Did, did they just say this to me? Is is that racist? Am I am I allowed to call that racist? Like, am I just being too sensitive? And and it's almost to the point. It seems obsessive. But you know, I think any person of color will tell you that is that is our life. Like, you know, you're constantly wondering, like, you know, what what was that? What was that all about? And you always start blaming yourself for thinking that, oh well, I'm just I'm just being more sense too sensitive, right? And of course, for Kip, he's also a gay man. And he's struggling with all the stereotypes of Black masculinity, that what people expect of him that he cannot deliver. And what does it mean to be seen? And he and Mohammed, both of them felt so seen and felt so loved by Ben, by Morgan, but yet they don't realize maybe being seen is something different from what they think it is. And of course, in the episode about writers, you know, this is also about uh, about writing and publishing and trying to fit in, you know, as a black author in a white dominated industry. How do I adapt my book to fit your needs? And that is something that they're constantly struggling with. And so I think this is a really great addition to a lot of the black queer novels that are out there. I think it's a funny book, but also at the same time, it's like, really really sad too um and i feel like it's got like i I don't want to ruin it but it's got like the perfect ending to the book and whether he actually end up writing the book or not and you know successfully um it's just it's got a a really good ending i think to the story so um yeah i i hope you will check it out this is greenland by david santos donaldson thank you virginia another wonderful representation of culture and identity and of almost meta kind of way of the writing about writing aspect of it. It's not very interesting. So now I think we may change it up a bit and go to our existential question. So for today, I was going to pose the question to all my book friends. If you could meet just one writer, living or dead, who would you choose? This is an easy one because I never want to meet my heroes. So if they wrote a book that I really love, I'd I, I would just like pretend I don't know them and walk out of the room, except for Richard Van Camp. Again, he was a delight. He was a delight. And most of them are lovely people. Um, but if I really, like, really, if I search my heart of who I really would like to meet or talk with, it's Italo Calvino. Uh, and that is because I want to take a swing at him. I want to take a swing at Italo Calvino. He robbed me of hours of my life and i remain frustrated by if on a winter's night to travel there's so much that sometimes it keeps me up at night at three o'clock what am i haunted by that stupid book that didn't make any sense that i had to read for university and i'm never gonna get over it so yeah i want to take a swing at him so wrong mark i will say that for you corinne is so wrong so wrong so wrong anyway um 
Yes. Uh, I think I'm like, just like Corinne, like I would be really scared. I don't want, I, want, I don't think I want to meet anybody that I, I admire because I will just, I want to maybe like, I can watch them from afar, like, you know, and I'll just observe them <laughs> from somewhere far away when they're talking to someone else, when they're talking to someone who is, yeah, because I, I can't. Um, so I will observe like people like Chao Xu from afar. I think that's what I would do. I guess I feel a little bit similarly. So like to like choose somebody who's a big character because like getting to experience them rather than having to have like a, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation. So probably Oscar Wilde or Virginia Woolf, just, you know, like be at a dinner party where they are there. Yeah, I think I also have to kind of like go big or go home. Not so much in terms of my own emotions, more just like there's a lot of, I think, very big authors that people have a lot of questions for. And so I feel like I can make the most out of it because I wouldn't want to ruin my own experience of like some random author. And I also wouldn't really want to talk to an author that I don't um, like. I'm saying that, but oh man, I'm changing my answer. Maybe I will go, <laughs> maybe I will go knock on Ayn Rand's door and see what's up. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'm changing my answer to that. Originally, I was going to say maybe like Orwell or like Shakespeare, someone who we could ask a lot of interesting questions for because their work has a lot of, um, <laughs> still has a lot of meaning these days. And I think it would be interesting to see and sort of let them know, I guess, what the future holds and whether or not they like it. But um, no, I'm going to go see Rand. So for mine, I'm also a bit similar to Korean and Virginia, but i my scenario would be I'd go to an author talk of John Le Carre. So I could ask him some questions, but I don't have to actually get to like know him like personally or anything like that. Just so there's still some distance there. But you also get to like ask a couple of questions that you really want to know about. So you kind of get like a little bit of both in a way. So you're not too close, but also actually meeting them and talking directly to them. Alrighty then. Thank you everyone for those insightful ideas and we now know that everyone here hates Ayn Rand for good reason. <laughs> so I think I will go next. And the book I will be talking about today is Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions or Goodbye Blue Monday. So Kurt Vonnegut was a writer from America, is known for being equally humane and crass, serious and vulgar, literary and mass audience oriented. Because of this, he sort of occupied an interesting space in American literature where he's sort of been too extreme and vulgar for sort of quote-unquote high literary tastes, but still revered by many as like a creative genius uh, and one of the greatest American writers of the 20th century. Prior to becoming a writer, Vonnegut served in World War II and was part of the Battle of the Bulge where he was captured by German soldiers. His experience as a captive and witnessing the bombing of Dresden and other atrocities of war it was very formative for him and created a kind of ambivalence within himself towards America and the society and culture and progress, ideas of progress in society. And this was sort of displayed in his most famous book, Slaughterhouse-Five, which chronicles an American POW who becomes a time traveler. And essentially because of the sort of mass popularity, but also the more vulgar and crass aspects of his novels has resulted in many of his books being banned or confiscated in schools and other places in the past, which in a way, it's almost made him more of an important figure because of the negative reactions toward him. In this book, Breakfast of Champions, he turns his attention to the field of literary writing and its influence on the thoughts and ideas of people who read it, along with all the other garbage that goes on in society. 
one of the two main characters in the story is Kilgore Trout, an unsuccessful and altogether average science fiction writer of over 200 novels and 1,000 stories, most of which have appeared as filler in pornographic magazines. His works feature all kinds of bizarre science fiction scenarios, such as native Hawaiians who have been dispossessed of their lands and forced to live in floating balloons on guide wires above the ground because 40 or so white people now own all the land, but not the air and atmosphere above the land. Thus, they are forced to live suspended in the air, disconnected from their land that they've tended for many generations. There are many of these little snippet summaries of Trout's works throughout the book that give depth and character to his literary mind in a way, as we sort of get a channel into Vonnegut himself, as he's uh, in some ways very similar to the character of Trout, so much so that some have speculated that Trout's meant to be like an autobiographical double of Vonnegut himself. For instance, he's written many bizarre science fiction stories himself, and also many of what, some of which, at least, appeared in magazines like Playboy. So there are some parallels between the two of them, but in fact, the character of Trout was actually partly based on Vonnegut's science fiction novelist friend, Theodore Sturgeon. Trout is even a recurring character throughout many of Vonnegut's works. It's made of a rather beloved character to fans of Vonnegut's works as a kind of quote-unquote voice of reason in time of madness. I sort of put reason in air quotes because in Vonnegut's writing, there's always absurdity, nonsense, and randomness that cannot be tamed by a single human mind. There are only voices of dissent that believe in some sense of decency and justice amidst this chaos and other random things going on. So in this story, through chance, Trout is invited to a literary festival uh, in Midland City to participate in a panel discussion on the status of the novel in the wake of the theories of Marshall McLuhan on media, though he has no clue who this McLuhan fellow actually is or what he thinks of novels, but he accepts the invitation anyways. And while on his travels and misadventures to the literary festival, Trout encounters a man in the bar of a Holiday Inn in Midland City. This man is Dwayne Hoover, the second protagonist of this novel. And Hoover is a successful car salesman on his own car dealerships, several fast burger chains, but he feels very adrift and lost in his life as of late. He lives alone after being estranged from his son, Bunny, who he will not speak to because he is gay. And his wife recently committed suicide by drinking Drano pipe cleaner. And because of this, he slowly started, started to lose his grip on right and wrong, real and unreal. And he sort of intimated that he has an untreated mental illness, essentially, that isn't specifically named, but may resemble somewhat schizophrenia or dementia, and that he experiences these hallucinations and exhibits symptoms called echolalia, which is a strange repetition of words that other people have said. And they just sort of repeat it back without it meaning really anything. They just repeat back what people have said. He is also a very temperamental and racist person, um, which Vonnegut tends to ascribe to many of his fellow Americans as this kind of pervasive underlying feeling that many white Americans have towards people who are different from themselves that he sort of has inserted into the character of Hoover. Through his encounter with Trout, Hoover learns of one of Trout's novels, which piques his interest titled Now It Can Be Told. The premise of Now It Can Be Told is that the entire world, with the exception of one person, the person reading the novel is in fact a humanoid robot who cannot feel or act freely, and only the reader has autonomous will. Hoover is convinced that this book is the God's honest truth, and that he has received a message from the universe that he is special, and must go on a mission to combat the robot scourge. 
and that he essentially lashes out in violent actions towards others, and that this is justified because they're not actually humans. Thus, he takes Trout's fiction to be reality, a reality that neatly explains away why his life has turned out the way it has, why nothing is how he thinks it should be, that explains how, as a straight white man in America, how his life could turn out in a way that he does not find satisfactory, why things that he disagrees with exist, essentially. He sort of forms this, this bizarre basis and justification for the book itself, um, sort of like this beyond, this sort of arc of these events. It's essentially Vonnegut's trying to examine American society through some a series of bizarre observations of the things that Trout has experienced and other characters in the story experience. This includes things like racism, inequality, destruction of the environment, and other social issues. We sort of see this in the way that men and women are treated differently in the novel, how white and black characters are perceived differently by certain people, how the environment is being destroyed by chemicals, cars, and just about everything else that Kilgore Trout observes in the world. He does this in sort of satirical manner that I can't really capture in this review because, one, because I don't have the kind of lyrical ability of Vonnegut, but also because there's a lot of language that I don't think I can repeat in this podcast. Another unique aspect of the book is that Vonnegut also includes many of his own little Sharpie pen doodles of people and objects throughout in place of descriptions of certain things, sort of saying like, oh, and there was a sign on the fence and it looked like this. And then it would have like a barbed wire fence with a sign saying, Trust, no trespassing, that means you, in place of describing that whole little image, he instead inserts an image with a drawing. This sort of adds another layer of body against kind of idiosyncrasy into the work. And I can't think of very many other works that have done something like that in an adult chapter book novel. So essentially, the book itself, I would kind of say, is like a cautionary tale about the power of ideas and belief, as stories may generally be applauded for the ability to open eyes and change the world. But Vonnegut, being the pessimist that he was, often tried to show the dangers of adhering to strict set of beliefs and that um, someone could essentially fabricate complete nonsense in people's heads even un unintentionally in the case of Trout and Hoover. So if you like books that blend humor with serious issues and aren't averse to a share of dirty language and outrageous situations along the way, then you may also like Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. Okay, then I think next we will go to Gabriel. I would not say that these are similar books that we're about to talk about at all, because just based on what you've described, I would say nothing like that. But mine does come from one of maybe the more well-known writers in the world. Not quite a Kurt Vonnegut, but maybe some elements of that are there. So I chose a, a I suppose it's an autobiography, although it is a partially fictionalized autobiography, so not a great idea to take anything in it as fact. Actually, in the preface, the author literally writes, if the reader prefers, this book may be regarded as fiction. So don't trust anything in it, basically. But A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway has been one of my favorite books for a long time. And it's not because I have much love for Hemingway as an author. I do find him fascinating, as he's quite a character, with an interesting life. He was a veteran in World War I, and he moved to Paris in the 1920s and was part of a group of expat writers and artists that made up one of the cultural scenes of the city. And A Movable Feast is his record of the time he spent there, what he did, who he met, his thoughts, 
it was published in 1964, so it was years after his experiences there, and he had already passed away. This book is almost like a strange travel novel at times. He frequents the Latin Quarter of Paris, and in particular, he spends a lot of time at cafes and bookstores in the area. Uh, he's a, a he's a big hipster. Um, I thought it was kind of fun. Uh, he spends time like describing the infamous bookstore Shakespeare and Company that's across from uh, Notre Dame, which has definitely been on my bucket list of places to go. At the time, it was sort of a private library where you could pay a fee to rent the books. And I think it kind of lives on in a lot of people's imaginations, maybe who are familiar with the place at the time. And so there's lots of these little landmarks that he likes to really orient the book around, which I thought was really fun for reasons that might become sort of apparent later. He also spends some of his time road tripping across France. Uh, he goes to Lyon with a very melodramatic F. Scott Fitzgerald. He hangs out in Gertrude Stein's apartment and they discuss literature. Uh, he goes boxing with Larry Gaines. He stares longingly at James Joyce through uh, the window of a building that he's in. He compares Fitzgerald's physique to statues in the Louvre after his wife Zelda complained about him. He grows his hair out to look like Ezra Pound's group of friends. He tries, or sorry, not tries, but he watches people um, crowdfund T.S. Eliot's retirement. Um, and there's like a million other shenanigans that make this book uh, read like an unexpected sitcom. So when you consider that in a sitcom, there are specific characters that appear. All of them are ridiculous. All the situations are ridiculous. It seems like it's the same thing sort of repeating all the time at very specific points with a very specific backdrop. A Movable Feast is probably one of my favorite sitcoms. So Hemingway has a very gruff way of writing and thinking about the world that I think is interesting to read in this format because he's not disguising it as something his character is thinking. It's all him, for better or for worse. And Hemingway has always been blunt and to the point, which means you're not guessing at where his head is at as he's observing sort of the parasisms. And I think that actually, if anything, goes more towards the idea that he's almost like a caricature of himself in this, which I thought was kind of fun, especially when you can sort of maybe distance yourself from him uh, as a person if you're not as fond of him. The book does cover some important parts of his life if you are interested in Hemingway from a literary or historical perspective, um, including his marriage with Hadley and his eventual divorce, as well as the birth of a child. And so all that is there if you're really interested in, in knowing about the author. But also not a fact that I learned from this book. Hemingway did have a very interesting life. And one thing I feel that maybe doesn't get talked about in the same way that I just learned things about Forster from Virginia's book is that actually one of Hemingway's kids, his oldest child, ended up being a trans woman. And so I feel like there's a lot about the, the literary greats that we don't end up hearing about that you sort of find later, which to me is very cool. And I think this book is actually, it's actually great for that because it kind of shows, um, I don't think he's as afraid. That's not true. I don't think that he thinks he's foolish in these books or in this book in particular, but I get to kind of see how the man was made. And so that's very fun to me. I think the book does have a fairly wide ranging appeal, especially for like wanderers or people who like stories that are grounded in a specific place. A movable feast, the title even, is referring to Paris. It's the concept that Paris is a movable feast. It will be with you wherever you go after you leave. It's also 
the book is a snapshot of a particular historical era that I know I'm fond of and a lot of people are. Uh, the 1920s or the Jazz Age is something that I think still captures a lot of people's minds. Um, Fitzgerald was writing Gatsby at the time. There's a lot of very prevalent, I'd say, books that came out of this period in these authors' lives. And we often call the people who came of age in World War One like the lost generation. And I think this book is one of the pieces that actually pop popularized that phrasing. So it is a deep dive into the very bizarre authors of the 1920s in Paris. It has a surprising amount of comedy. Some of it he's going for. Some of it is all situational. And so even as someone who maybe isn't always a fan of Hemingway's writing, a lot of his advice I still kind of like. And so there is plenty of advice from him through the book. A lot of it comes through his conversations with Gertrude Stein, as I mentioned before, because they are both big authors. They're both very opinionated authors. And so they had a lot of debates that he sort of um, catalogs and he very much respected her opinion. And so I think he he does a good job at showing both of the perspectives they had, but not necessarily trying to prove he's right. I think I think he kind of thinks that's implicit, but either way, uh, he does he does show sort of the the extent of the debates. And I think that's a really interesting thing to see through such notable writers. So whether you read it as a historical text or just because you want to hear about the bizarre road trip that Hemingway and Fitzgerald went on, I would absolutely recommend it. There's also a movie that is half based on it. Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson <laughs> heavily borrowed from it. While the rom-com part of that movie is very cringy, the actors did a very good job of playing these old authors and um, oddballs. <laughs> Picasso, I believe, is in it, and he's he's pretty pretty close to the description that um, Ernest Hemingway gives for him. In terms of other movies that I could recommend based on the idea of writing and authors, there is my favorite movie is actually sort of similar to some of the books that we've talked about in which it's a story about stories. And I don't want to say too much about it because I think it would betray too much of who I am as a person. But if you are a movie buff, I would recommend watching The Fall, which is a movie that came out in 2006 and was directed by Tarzan Singh. And that's my favorite movie. So if you are interested in a sitcom approach to the authors, I would say pick up Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast, and you can probably find it discarded in a random bookstore at the back, secondhand. It was published in the 60s. I'm sure there's also copies online, but we have a copy here at the library if you need one. So, Thank you, Gabriel. That's actually one of the ones that I've been so interested in reading in the past. I've heard many little tidbits about the stories, particularly about Fitzgerald and Hemingway. So definitely sort of confirms a lot of the things that I've heard about in the past. So I think I'm thinking going to have to check that one out eventually as well. Um, so that's all for us today. I'd like to thank my book friends again for being here and all of you for joining. Oh, right. that's right. Corrine's still here. Forgot about that. Well, that's what you get for dissing someone's favorite author. Yeah, suddenly I'm, I'm off the podcast. I don't know why I forgot. Whatever, I stand by it. I could take it. He's an old man. Or dead? Dead, yeah. He's been dead for like 40 years. I can definitely take him there. Yeah. <laughs> so, Corrine, what, what wonderful book did you read this week? 
I think this is why I forgot about you. Well, Mark, I chose a book by a great author whose books are good that everyone can enjoy because they make sense. And there's a story and there's characters and you don't have to read the same stupid passage about being in a stupid forest 85 times. I, I Okay, I need to change gears very fast because this is not a type of book that I can talk about in this tone of voice. I ended up choosing a memoir. I, I, I started with Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was a sleek 78 pages long and then quickly transitioned to a book which is 688 pages long which is a bit of a doorstopper but um this is a person who has had kind of a remarkable life and so kind of needs all those pages when huang sakyang was growing up he was always forced to use his right hand so his left hand was considered wrong even though it was always his instinct and his his urge to use that left hand it always felt right and so he has always felt himself both bodily divided as well as geographically divided so during the korean war his parents had fled over to the border into seoul and has always felt that separation of the two Koreas very, very keenly because he is not able to return to his home. He has always felt that he uses this right hand for his writing, for these beautiful novels that he shares with the people, for these stories that he writes, but his left hand is always still there to swing a fist or to pull a woman into his embrace, he says. So he constantly feels this division between himself and everything that he stands for. He himself feels like a bit of a refugee because of the circumstances of his life and his writing. He really asks in his memoir, what is the purpose of a writer? Is it for entertainment? Is it to educate? It is to challenge. Huang Sakyang posits that being a writer is inherently political, that you need to be a great writer, to be a good writer, to tell the truth. And in this memoir, he asks, what is the price that writers should be willing to pay to tell that truth? And he himself has paid quite a severe price years of his life to be able to tell the truth about what happened in his country. Huang Sakyang is a political activist and has been his entire life, as well as a award-winning, acclaimed novelist. He has written some beautiful books that I stumbled upon because of yours and mine, favorite translator, uh, Anton Herr, who did Cursed Bunny, I Want to Die, But I Want to Eat Tokbaki, and Violets. He and Sora Kim Russell translated this 688-page memoir, which is called The Prisoner, which details his life in politics and his life in writing, which started when he was a student who was constantly fighting for democracy, for the freedom to criticize the government, uh, struggling against censorship, against a military dictatorship, and his support for unification. So he has this kind of single-minded purpose and dedication to his craft, uh, a dedication to his ideals, that throughout the book you get a sense that sometimes he he laments that maybe he could have been a better husband and probably a better father because this dedication is all-consuming for him. 
But he believes that the purpose of the writer and his purpose is really to tell those truths that many people in his country and his government didn't want to hear and didn't want other people to know. So it really starts when he is conscripted to fight in the Vietnamese War. And part of his job while he was in the military was covering up massacres was hiding any trace of it so that no evidence could be found of what had really happened there. And that obviously affected his life greatly because he rebelled so strongly against it that he spends all of his political time, again, trying to expose what is what is there and what is hidden. So he was jailed for the first time in 1964 for meeting with a labor union. Him and his wife were both political activists in the Guangzhou uprising where the people rose up against the, uh, the the government. He was part of a group that compiled the memoirs and remembrances of survivors and published it. And so both the publisher and he himself had to go underground in order to escape being jailed. He continues to work uh, traveling the world, spending time in the United States away from his home. But again, that pull to unify the two aspects of himself those 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 two parts of himself um led to him visiting north korea in 1989 which was illegal and considered traitorous to the country so after a long time in exile in the united states he felt the pull of what he said his motherland he said a writer should visit their motherland they should visit their their country and so in 1993, he returned to South Korea only to be imprisoned and arrested immediately. He was sentenced to seven years in jail for visiting North Korea, but served five of them. Um, in 1998, he was pardoned by the new president who came into power. And this book really details his political experience, but also how he kept his his sanity while he was imprisoned, while he was in jail, the monotony of it, the injustice of it all, the uh, abuses that they suffer they, they, that he suffered at the hands of other prisoners because they were for a long time marked as uh, with a red patch on their outfits because they were considered traitors to the country and so were made targets in the jail um, by other people. So in many ways, it is a memoir of survival. It is in some ways melancholy, in some ways triumphant, um, because now he is considered one of the greatest Korean novelists of his time. But really, he comes back time and time and time again of that purpose of a writer in society. What is he there to do? What should he give? How do you fight against untruths and how important the role of the writer is in a community and a space and a society because they are the ones who are constantly questioning. And there's a great quote from him where he says, a society where artists have lost their faculty of criticism and submit unconditionally to power is well on its way to losing its democracy. And so Hong Suk-young, I don't think will ever put down his pen in service of that cause. And so if you are looking for a fascinating look at a political activist and a writer, um, I would definitely recommend that you pick up his amazing books, um, At Dusk and Familiar Things. They're both incredible. Um, but if you're wanting to learn a little bit more about the man himself, I recommend that you pick up The Prisoner by Huang Sok-young.
Thank you, Corrine. Interesting to hear about the kind of motivations, the different background aspects of the person behind the books. It's always interesting to see, especially in like that kind of context where he's very much was living in a somewhat dangerous situation, putting himself out, himself and his wife and all the other people who are fighting for the good fight, kind of essentially. Okay, so that really is it for us today. Thank you again to everyone. Thank you to Fiona. Thank you to Corrine, Virginia, and Gabriel. I hope to see you again soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.